Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on Tour. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. We are very happy today to be broadcasting live from Feast Portland, Portland, Oregon, uh, switching coasts. And uh, before we kick things off, I just want to say another thank you to our sponsors who've made it possible for us to be here today. We're super, super grateful to Travel Portland, Stream PDX, uh, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts, and Hazelfern Cellars, a local winery, and also, of course, to Feast, to the festival for having us. This is our first year here, and we are just delighted to be here. Um, and this is a special episode I am uh, co-hosting right now with Andrew Friedman of Andrew Talks to Chefs. Andrew, welcome. Thank you, Katie. Thank you for joining. My pleasure. And the Andrew Friedman. The yeah. one and only Andrew statement. Friedman. Uh, we are... There's uh, like 100 people in New York. <laughs> There's 100 people in New York alone with my name. As I, maybe as just I, in your apartment As I building. proved in a bet once. <laughs> you know what? I want a dinner off of that. You might fact. not be the only, but you are the best, Andrew Friedman. Uninvented <laughs> parents, but that's another story. We're also extremely honored to have another Andrew joining us at the table today in the stream PDX. Um, to my left, we have Andrew Zimmern. He is a prolific writer, TV personality, a chef, teacher, a four-time James Beard Award winner. You know him as the executive producer and host of Bizarre Foods on the Travel Channel, as well as Andrew Zimmern's Driven by Food and the Zimmern List. And he's a contributor to many other food publications. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. We're really glad to have you here today. I'm I'm super excited to be here because for people who do what I do for a living, we do tons of you know, desk side chats and podcasts and interviews and stuff like that. And you circle the handful of ones on a year where you get to talk with people that you're really excited about talking about or talking with. So this is this is awesome. Well, that's certainly something else. Thank you. No, it's true. <laughs> um, well, I, I just want to start A lot of pressure on you guys to ask good questions. But, well, you know. you know, we'll see. We'll see what we can do. Um, well, I do want to just touch on um, kind of one of the big events that's brought you here to Portland. Mm -hmm. um, so we have uh, tonight the Zero Proof Dinner. Yeah. Can you tell us what is this event and why did you want to be a part of it? it they came up with a really good name for it. Mine was the No Wine Wine Dinner. Um <laughs> But which quickly got passed over. But, you know, one of the biggest uh, growing uh, totems in the festival world is an increase in the number of uh, group chef dinners that are built into a festival that festival goers either get bundled with a VIP ticket uh, where you get a couple tickets to these dinners, or you can purchase them as one-offs. And it's expanded the footprint of festivals all over the cities that they're in, and it's really brought in a ton of local chefs and their friends and provided uh, a lot more space for out-of-towners to come in. So I do them all the time because I just think it's the coolest thing, and it's the best part of the festival. I'm not sure people need to see yet another TV person doing yet another demo from the stage with the same jokes and you know but but participating in a dinner where you know i mean look you can go to husk and sean brock is not going to be cooking your dinner i mean i can guarantee that he may be in the kitchen that night but you know tonight sean brock is cooking his course for a hundred guests at zero proof um it's it's something that privately a whole bunch of us have been talking about for the last four or five years. And uh, Gabe Rucker, uh, local superstar, um, 
was really the one who sort of drove it home with the feast people without whose support it wouldn't be possible and of course the hysterical thing is is that you know the liquor sponsors were the first ones to say we love this idea Mm -hmm. and um it sold out in like a minute and a half two minutes online and the point that we're trying to make and i think every chef has a different who's participating has a different take on it and we have we have i think it's five chefs and uh one sober bartender um, is you don't have to have booze to have a good time, right? That's that's number one. Just on the face of it, that's a, that's a, that's a good message to send, right? You know, you can do it without. I'm I'm not anti booze. I'm you know, I'm more pro weed. You know, I mean, because I think alcohol is very 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 dangerous. Topic for another day. But for me, I've lost the the the. I've lost choice in that department. So I'm very for everyone else's choice in that department. However, the the subtext of this whole thing is more than just having a good time without booze. I think the subtext of it really addresses this how hard I party, how hard I cook, how hard historic. I mean, it's been, I'm not really fond, it's kind of like, I'm not really fond of phrases like farm to table. I'm not really fond of the phrase toxic masculinity, but until someone comes up with a better one, and since it's the one that everyone else is using, I'm I'm game. It really goes to speak to a new day and time where chefs, you don't need to, you know, walk around with a broken ankle and finish the shift. You don't need to pound three beers and four shots afterwards faster than the next guy. Um, you, it, it's, it's, it's about... It's about bringing empathy, I guess, into the kitchen. I know that sounds just so, as it's coming out of my mouth, it sounds um, almost a little too uh, crunchy. But the fact of the matter is, is that I think kitchens are a space where more empathy would be a really good thing. And this this dinner, I, I hope, would be the first of many. Um, and I hope that it opens up a lot of conversation about that stuff. And the food is going to be, I mean, ridiculous. I mean, Gabe's cooking, I'm cooking, Sean's cooking, Mike Solomonov is cooking. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, you know, pretty nice group. Do you feel like the industry is having, I mean, this is a multi-generational dinner, right? Yep. Um, I feel like the industry is having. Is that because we have some young guys in me? (laughs) (laughs) I just think it is different gradations of young, Andrew. I think you're all younger to a different extent. Um, but what I wanted to ask you was, you know, there's a line I love from the movie The Player where um, Peter Gallagher, I think, is driving around in his convertible and he says to someone, I can't come, I have a, I have a meeting, I have a 12-step meeting. Mm-hmm. And the person goes, oh, I didn't know you were in recovery. And he's like, well, I'm not really, but that's where all the good meetings are. That's right. Right? And I feel like this industry, mm-hmm. your industry, mm-hmm. is having a, like a moment right now. Absolutely. Where there was a little bit of a moment like this years ago where a lot of people found rehab and then... I think you know the tide came back in a little bit, and but now more than ever, I think it is. It's you know uh, we had Mike Solomonov yeah. in this morning. And we were talking about the fact that you know I had an old friend who who was in AA mm-hmm. would re- allude to the fact that she was in a twelve step program, mm-hmm. but would never say AA. And mm-hmm. I said why, and she goes, "Well, the second A stands for anonymous, right? Sobriety traditionally, in a lot of cases, is a very private thing, right?" Mm-hmm. Here's five chefs and a, amazingly a, a mixologist or whatever his mm-hmm. actual role is. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
some of you, you to the most extent, but you know, Mike and, and Sean and the others are no slouches in the fame department, very public figures. And you guys are, there's a huge part of your life that is out there. Well, I mean, if you look general, you, you, there's so much to unpack there. You, you raise a great point. Let me go back to the first thing that you said about the, you know, we had a moment a while ago with sobriety. I think what, what's happened is it's, it's actually mimicked someone who stays sober a long time. First, you put the cork in the bottle, and that's a statement enough, and a lot of problems go away. And then you start to get into what I call emotional sobriety at mm. some point, where you actually start to work on the real shit, right? So I sobered up. I had 100 problems in my life. 50 of them never happened again. I never got a DUI once I got sober, ever. You know? I mean, sounds simple, but those prob- my problems with the law evaporated, right? Right. You get to 27 years sober, and every problem that I have in my life today, I can trace it to two or three of the same sort of toxic behaviors that I repeat over and over and over again. Some, I mean, much less than I used to. Every year, I get better at it. But that's also because every year, I'm going off to places like uh, on-site in the Meadows and, uh, you know, Hazelden, uh, Betty Ford, and doing workshops and, and taking care of other issues that come up. I've spent the last five years doing a lot of work on intimacy and trauma stuff because I need it. Yeah. Now, that 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 thing you're talking about, that that new moment that we're having is the new version of that scene in The Player, which I adore, too. Where, I mean, and I'm sure you guys have noticed because you're, you're keener, you know, on these things than I am. But when you look at all of the food journo stuff of the last six months, I think there's more people in our industry talking about everything from yoga to going to a shrink to, you know, what they talk about with their therapist. More of that chat in the last six months than in the previous 20 years combined. 20 years. It is maybe like history of the profession. Yeah. And I love it because it, it, you know, if you're vulnerable, if you are transparent, two things that I really believe in, um, it's amazing how, how empowered you become. And people, people really feel it's the opposite. We came up in kitchens where it's like, tough it out. Don't tell anyone how tired you are. You won't get the extra shift. You won't, I mean, just, it, it, it invades every aspect of our personality. And, you know, I was raised by a World War II Navy vet who was, you know, self-made guy, start, you know, help start a big company in New York. And, you know, when things would happen in our lives, it was like, okay, we're gonna talk about it once, then we're gonna stuff that thing down and we are never gonna talk about it again. And it just, to, to, to live a life where you start to turn that whole dynamic around, and that's what's happening in kitchens right now. Uh, you know, I'm about to open a restaurant in Minneapolis and educating my, my partners and our team leaders now on what this new kitchen is going to look like. Everything from how we pay. Now, I've been out of the restaurant business for almost 20 years in, in, in terms of uh, having my own. And it's fascinating to me how different it looks than the restaurant I created when I arrived in Minneapolis, you know. Um, which was a very toxic environment, despite the fact that I was sober. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is it is such a joy to see these things being talked about now, and the power of empathy, and you know what it means to really engage with people, and and chefs are listening. I, I don't think I ever heard that word when I was coming up, once and anywhere. I mean, 
the chef listening or the, the chef made decisions and you were lucky to get 30 seconds of FaceTime with him. Anyway, yeah, it's a, it's a miraculous turnaround. So um, sort of speaking of this, like the paradigm shift towards like wellness being this amazing topic that's getting so much attention in hospitality. Are there some um, things that you've seen kind of in the industry where you think restaurants or chefs are doing a really good job, particularly like on the sobriety angle, um, as far as like making that change happen in a way that is more public facing and not like just within the industry itself? Explain that. You mean specifically certain chefs who are doing things like practices, so I, pub, for example, like with side? the Zero Proof Dinners, yep. um, you know, we've seen similar events happening now at Charleston Wine and Food, and, sure. and so this is one example, I think, of a way that the industry is saying, hey, it's actually cool to be sober, you can well, have a good time. Well, I'll tell you, yeah, now, I, now I get it. Um, first of all, um, I know it seems like a little, stu- little thing. Uh, when I was coming up, every night you gathered at the bar in the restaurant and drank the night away with your fellows and then you moved on somewhere else and drank the night away now i'm not saying there there were restaurants that didn't do that of course there were but the vast majority there was the after shift drink there was the you know doing lines in the bathroom with the bartender there i mean it just went on and on and on now chefs as policy i mean we don't have a shift drink policy it's like if we'd love you to have a good time you know when you go you know out after you've left work you know, um, it doesn't mean we don't celebrate our employees and do other things. Um, you know, Mike's restaurant. I, I mean, you know, I know for a fact because I spend a lot of time whenever I'm in Philly at Zahav and Mike and I are very close friends. Um, they don't do a shift drink yeah. thing. And I, I've, I haven't seen the shift drink thing happen. You know, I, uh, I, I'm partners with Gavin Kaysen in a bunch of projects in Minneapolis. We don't do the shift drink. I mean, it's just like. The shift-ring thing has disappeared. Now, I know that doesn't sound like it's public-facing, but it would happen at the bar when customers there because the kitchen guys get off and the bar is still open. Um, I think the evolution of and elevation of non-alcoholic drinks with food. Now, for years, years and years and years, uh, because I've been sober a long time, I have missed what wine, beer, spirits do when I'm eating food to my palate, to the food itself. Um, And, you know, anybody who enjoys a glass of wine with food knows that there's a difference between having a really spicy, raw, young Malbec with your Boeuf Bourguignon and having a Tuscan Super Red with your Boeuf Bourguignon. You know, I mean, and, and I'm not trying to mix culinary metaphors here. I mean, just the one is going to taste a lot different than the other. And it's going to be different with a, 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 a Saison that you just, you know, opened or a bottle of Prosecco. So now mixologists, bartenders, chefs are collaborating on, and doing their own fermentations, making their own uh, spirits, their own bitters in the restaurant. There's um, uh, Marco Zapata is a young uh, bartender who I think is going to win every award in our industry in two or three years when the rest of the nation takes notice of him. He's is restaurant he works at martina in minneapolis um he's making his own three different kinds of vermouth you know in the basement i mean it's just unbelievable 
what these people are doing. And on the non-alcoholic side, and you look at the beverage menu for our dinner tonight, it's staggering. And I, I had a flight of non-alcoholic beverages the last time I was at Gabe's restaurant here in town. I was, I don't know, I was here in Portland about seven, eight months ago. And some of them were even matching some of the ingredients treated a different way. You know, there's a dish that had blueberries. So, of course, he made a blueberry shrub, which was part of I mean, they pick up on flavors and it makes the food taste better. It makes the dining experience taste better. I was excited. I was as excited about the beverage coming to me. And, you know, again, small ways, public facing, small P. But other people are like, oh, my God, what are you? I mean, they were looking because I'm at the counter at Le Pigeon. It's. The centerpiece of the is a ten seat counter, and I, people are asking, "What is that?" Um, I also think a lot of the conversation that's going on, and and you know, Andrew, you were talking about it before. Chefs are now so comfortable talking about their their mistakes; they're more comfortable talking about what's actually happening in their lives. Um, the New York Times, uh, Kim Severson wrote a, a very nice profile of me in this last Wednesday's paper. And um, there were some really, really like, you know, super famous friends of mine who texted me saying, I'm so jealous. Like, I can't, I can't do that. And I was like, do what? And it's like, like bear my warts like show every like actually say what's going on and like currently with my life here's what's happening or or be willing to tell a reporter that you know you know at times you feel a little out of control or what the power of fame does to you or how that impacts a marriage or fatherhood but every human being out there on the street I'm I'm in a airstream and I'm looking at people on the street there's not a human being out there that doesn't have the exact same issues 100% so if you want human beings to relate to you and you want to make a difference in the world all you have to do is tell the truth and be transparent without being hurtful to others I mean you know we're not going to walk around right this is emotional libertarianism oh I love <laughs> See, I told you this oh was a God. great conversation we, we right? are uh, we need to make this a recurring theme and it's going to be life lessons with Andrew and Andrew <laughs> Yeah, well. but it's, it, it, it is a very very it's such an important you know, topic because the more people that are open about it, the more people say, "Oh, wow, that guy can do. I can do that too." Or they they hear something that rings true in their own life and it makes them smile for the day. Does this? This is a question I asked Mike this morning. Mm-hmm. For you to have something so personal be so out there, mm-hmm. right? Does it make it easier for you to go through the world? A thousand times because because you're not putting an incredible amount of effort into thousand creating times. some fake facade because you're just. It's just out there and you don't have to worry about it. The amount of emotional and psychological and, yes, at times physical energy people burn juggling the balls of lies and yeah. uh, facades. Forget, I mean, just that is exhausting. It can also boomerang back on you and it can it can mess up your life in ways that you can't even imagine. I tell young people coming into recovery, do, the big question is, do I tell people at work? And I say, yes. Now, you may not be able to do that for three, six months. It takes a little time under your belt and some trust in the system and working with you know other people in sobriety and getting mentored in your 12-step group. Um, but I do say that transparency is the greatest freedom 
because you never know when you're working in the office and everyone's, someone turns around, it's like, hey, it's five o'clock shots and puts one in your hand after you've just hung up the phone and your girlfriend broke up with you. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to take that risk with something that's waiting in my life to kill me at every turn. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the more that we talk about our real demons, the better off we are. Yeah. If they, I mean, put it this way. Our secrets can kill us. Right. Mm-hmm. For anyone. Mm-hmm. And so to the degree that we can be honest and alcoholics and drug addicts, we tend to be more compartmentalized. But as long as one or two, three people know all the stuff in your life and as long as you're living out there, it's just so much easier. And you then get the the blessing, the gift of other people coming up to you at the times you need it the most saying, hey, I read that thing that really helped me a lot. Thanks. Mm. I mean, it's it is amazing how the universe rewards you. I've never gotten that message back from someone on a day that I actually didn't need to hear it. You know, what's funny. I have a very underfed blog that I barely have time for and Mm -hmm. I suffer from OCD Mm -hmm. and I don't there. I have no issue with anyone who talks about their stuff a lot. Sure. I've just not something I ever really wanted to talk about. Sure. And I was so bummed out that I didn't had him posting more (laughs) that one Saturday couple of months back I wrote woke up and in 90 minutes I wrote a whole piece about it and I posted yeah. it and it's the thing I've gotten the most emails yeah, about bingo from people who were like bingo. either they have it or oh you know what I might have it like now yeah. I think I recognize well some people stuff. are really confused about it because they think OCD is about lining up pillows you know right and and you know that's, that's half the, of it that's half. yes <laughs> there's a whole other part but there's can i ask you a question time for, didn't it yeah. didn't just talking about it and then getting that feedback have yeah. it lose some of its power over you a ton. yeah there you go and i got emails from certain friends of mine because it's a food business yeah. a, a lowly writer like me meets people who've been like the you know captains of industry because mm-hmm. we have mutual friends mm-hmm. and we end up at dinner together and i got an email from a tough guy friend of mine who used to run a major advertising mm-hmm. agency and he was like, you did yourself the biggest favor. Biggest today. favor ever. Yeah. And it was the last person who I would expect would have approved. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Anyway. That's fantastic. That's I didn't how mean it, to take no, the last no, minute. But that's, but. No, but that's how, that's how it works. That's how it works. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's not about me sounding smart. It's about this conversation having an impact on the lives of the listeners. I mean, that's really what this is about. So whatever your ism is. Yeah. Talk to someone about it. I mean, I say that 10 times a day on my Twitter feed when someone, what do I just like talk to another human yeah, being talking about is it. Just good. talk, talk. I had, a, I had a question for you that was sort of like, what is the best part of your job, which is just a really amazing combination of all, all kinds of travel and, mm-hmm. and different styles of work. Um, would you say that this sort of, these types of conversations are Yeah, because they're, they're the, the most, they're the most impactful and, it, you know, but, uh, you know, some people are bored with that as an answer, you know, so that that's answer one a, you know, answer, you know, one small a or whatever comes next one B um, Roman numeral. I, I, I don't know, it's, I'm confused. You've had if too many lawyers contract. in your life. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, the, the next one down really is, you know, adventure learning through people. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone says, you know, oh, my God, you were in that amazing place. And I don't remember what the beach in Madagascar looked like as much as I remember talking to Jama the fisherman, the poorest human being living in some of the worst conditions I've ever, you know, seen with someone who I've spent a decent amount of time with. And I asked him if he was happy and he laughed at me and he said, I'm healthy. I'm with my family. What more could I ask for? And I just, and he looked at me like with that knowing look like, 
yeah, modern guy, you're you're the unhappy one. And it was the most amazing moment. It's it's you know it's it, the world is not made up of you know foie gras and airstreams. It's made up of people. So it's that that adventure learning through through human beings is just uplifting and amazing. I mean, I'm so lucky to have experienced so many different kinds of it in so many different places with different ways of thinking. And tribal people have taught me the most. I mean, the tribal skill set far outpaces ours, right? I mean, every tribal... Mm. I'm talking about people who live indistinguishably from the way their people did thousands, tens of thousands of years ago. Everyone's a doctor, a lawyer, an architect, a designer, an engineer, a veterinarian, a warrior. I mean, you have to be, or the tribe pushes you away. So you learn these skill sets at a young age, and then you hone them over the course of the lifetime so that you can be useful to the tribe. You go spend a week with some of the hidden tribes around the world, and I've been lucky enough to spend time with, you know, 8 out of the 20, 10 out of the 20, something like that. I mean, geez, it's, it's humbling, but you learn so, so much, so, so much, and it puts your life in perspective. Amazing. Uh, we're we're getting close to the end of our time, but can you give us like a minute and thirty second preview of Lucky Cricket? Oh yeah, sure. Um, I missed cooking, um, and I love Chinese food, and I I was in a Chinese restaurant in my hometown that I liked a lot, and the guys in the kitchen. I stuck my head in the kitchen because I everywhere I go, you know, I stick my head in the kitchen. I thank the people who made my food, and. Um, I saw three or four guys just looking like they'd just been beat to crap by a long day in a kitchen way hotter than it should have been. In in a room with, you know, some health code and construction violations. And, you know, I just took in this scene and I was like, these are the invisible people toiling away in, in anonymity, making this great food. And I started to get this idea, you know, about how do I work all this out for myself? And I said, I know what I'll do because I grew up in Trader Vic's. My my mom went to school with Vic Bergeron's daughter at Mills College in San Francisco. So Vic Bergeron taught my mom and his daughter to cook at the same time over three or four years in the restaurant at the house. So they were all good friends. So when I was eight, nine, ten years old, we'd go to Trader Vic's. I'd get juice. My dad and mom would get drinks. We'd eat poo-poo platters. And we'd go home. When I was 14, 15, they would serve underage kids. I mean, growing up in New York, there were a whole bunch of places, you know, you know, from McMullins to Malkins to well, J.G. Mellon on the east side. Well, the was only 17, Something like that. Yeah. Something like well, yeah. that. Um, and we'd go to the plaza and go to the Trader Vic's. And so I had this tiki bar obsession as well. And I just kind of put it all together and I said, I miss the restaurant business. And I thought, why shouldn't... <sighs> Why shouldn't an old Jewish guy from New York open up a Chinese restaurant in a suburban mall in Minneapolis with a tiki bar attached to it? I just thought that was a good idea. And I'm really I'm super excited about the food. Actually, I'm we, we've just completed like like completed, completed the first couple phases of testing. So now we discard some items and we have the final menu so there's gonna be a lot of stuff on my instagram about the new items that are there but it's just incredible and my friend alex ong uh, who owned betel nut in san francisco um has been spending a lot of time in the twin cities working with our chefs and teaching technique and we head out into the community on monday because we have in minneapolis with this huge Hmong community there are tribal people from the hill country between uh, laos and thailand 
and uh, all most of them airlifted in the 70s, you know, for safety reasons. Uh, the North Vietnamese were trying to exterminate them. Um, and uh, at the end of the Vietnamese War. And so we have this incredible, incredible resource of talented young cooks in the Twin Cities, but they're not being hired in quote unquote good restaurants, which boggles my mind. So I'm, I'm, you know, we're going to pay these people a fair wage and we're going to, you know, give people benefits and we're going to make some kick-ass Chinese food. That it's, I mean, amazing. some of it is really, really tasty. I, I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> I don't doubt it. Not I'm booking my ticket. Um, do you have an ETA? Uh, well, I know these things. It was are. no, it was going to be like October twenty second, and then there was you, you get halfway through construction, someone opens up a wall, and no one knew, and it's like, oh gosh, all right. And then you got to order different size something, and then you're set back a couple weeks. So right now we're looking essentially at mid November. Amazing. Yeah, but it's right. it's happening this fall, which is also really scary for me. I mean, I haven't done that in a long time, but I'm super, super excited about it. Because if you don't take risks, someone said to me, are you afraid to, maybe it was Kim in the time, she's like, you know, what happens if you fail? I'm like, I don't know. I get up the next day and try to fix it. I mean, it's, you know, if you live your life out there and you're transparent, failure looks a lot different. Failure looks a lot different. It's not half as scary. It's just another day. Well, thank you. We wish you all the best. Oh, thanks. No, thanks for having me. So many thanks for coming on today. No, this is awesome. I love it. We're so psyched to have you and uh, wish you a great, successful event. And uh, looking forward to seeing you around town in Portland this weekend. You know, uh, here's I I fly out on the red eye to go do the Nashville food and wine tomorrow. Oh, so that's before you go back to New York in two days. Yes. Oh, I, didn't I, I, I lead a hectic life. <laughs> I got a lot of miles. And you don't know this, Katie, but Andrew oh, came gosh. straight from the airport uh, to the airstream. Uh, yeah, I, I, I knew that you were on a, a, tw- a yeah, no, quick a, clip here. But, but I wouldn't miss I wouldn't miss all this for the world. And, you know, people say, well, why do you say it's very interesting because a lot of people, you know, close to me are like, well, why don't you just go to the hotel? Do you need to do another podcast? It's like, no, I don't need to do another podcast. And quite frankly, if it was just another podcast, I wouldn't be sitting here talking. But when you have the opportunity to have real discussion and actually talk about like real things in our industry, there's nowhere, there's nothing that I would rather actually be doing. What am I going to do? Watch Sports Center again for 25 minutes and, you know, drink a ginger ale in the air conditioning and go, okay, look at my watch, time to leave? No, I'd rather talk to you guys. So thanks for doing what you do. Thank well, you. Thank you for being here. We're psyched to have you. Um, this has been Heritage Radio Network on tour. Just a quick thanks again to Travel Portland, Stream PDX, the Julia Child Foundation, and Hazel Fern Sellers for making our coverage today possible. And thanks again to Aaron Parecki for being our engineer today at Stream PDX. We will be back in just a few moments. Bear with us. Thanks. Thanks.